Okay, welcome everybody. This is another edition of uh, Conversations with Dr. Cowan and Friends. And uh, on today's edition, I have the great honor of, of speaking with uh, Dr. Gerald Pollack, who I will now call Jerry from now on, if that's okay. Sure. And as everybody I think knows who's seen the ones, I, I'm not a big fan of, you know, Dr. Pollock went to Iowa State because I don't frankly even know where you went to school. <laughs> and I don't really care very much uh, because what I care about is what I know about you. And if uh, I, I ran this by you, so I'm going to share what my experience of you and your work is. And as I always say to everybody, I'll try not to be so long-winded, but then you get to correct anything that uh, you heard that doesn't square with your experience. So here we go. So I had been aware that, the, that people had said, particularly this guy, Rudolf Steiner and others, that the heart is not a pump. This goes back for me, it's almost 40 years. And so I spent a long time looking into that and looking into the mechanics and the, you know, the sort of science of that and I was convinced that that was correct that the heart can't possibly be the pressure propulsion device for movement of the blood but then in all my readings and all my thinkings and all my ponderings about this I only could say for sure that the movement of the blood had to start in the capillaries because that's where you need movement and there was nobody I knew who could uh, help me understand, nor could I figure out for myself what actually started the movement. I knew that when it started moving, just because of what's I think called Bernoulli's principle, it will coalesce and go faster and faster. So I knew that once we got it started, that we were gonna be okay. And I couldn't find anybody to help me with this. And then I don't know how many years ago, uh, I don't know how this came about. Somebody said, read uh, Jerry Pollack's book, The Fourth Phase of Water. And it was like a light went off because I realized that that was the mechanism, this, uh, this anomalous, if you want to use that word, ability of water to form what you call easy water or gel water or structured water or coherent water. And that created this electrostatic force in the, in, the, in the blood that is the reason the sap moves in the trees and the reason the blood moves in the capillaries. And that then got me to read everything you ever wrote and watch a bunch of, of, <laughs> of, of YouTube lectures. And then I read uh, probably five or six times everything that Gilbert Ling ever wrote because that was tough sledding for me. And then I read everything Maywan Ho wrote. And that then led me to understand not only the dynamics of the movement of the blood, which was the original reason, but it then went on to say, to, for me to say the reason uh, we have fever and the reason for so-called infections is because our, our tissues are made of gels and you get stuff dissolved in it. And then you have to get rid of this stuff. And because we don't have little scoopers to get the poisons out, we use fever to melt the gels and create mucus. And that's how 
That's what we call being sick. So then the whole, the whole system of being sick made sense because of you know, the fact that the, the, cell, the tissues are gels. And that led to a theory of cancer, which is basically the tissues are poisoned, they're gels. You can't have this, the sodium potassium pump is itself a myth. And then this, the tissues coalesce this poison into toxic cells, which we call cancer. And so that led to that. And then the next step was the, the mechanism of toxicity for electromagnetic fields, which I think, uh, again, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think what you have demonstrated is they disturb the structure of the gels. So in essence, my entire, the, the, my entire body of work is just applying what I learned from you to, to, to sort of fill in the details. Or like I like to say, I didn't really think of anything. I just stole these ideas. Although I would say in my defense, even though I steal the ideas, I do acknowledge the people I steal them from. <laughs> so maybe stealing is the wrong word. But the, the, the debt of gratitude that I owe personally to your work, I mean, I, I can hardly even describe that because I couldn't get anywhere with, with how I was picturing this until I heard, you know, heard and read you, your, your work. So again, I I'm happy if you correct anything, but that's how it was for me. Ah, uh, okay. Well, Tom, there's, there's uh, really, uh, uh, there's really not a whole lot to correct. First of all, thank you so much for your your flattering uh, comments. Um, you know, they 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 point to a kind of centrality of uh, what you consider gels, and uh, and and you use the term gels, and certainly gels is is appropriate and. You know, basically, our body is a, is a gel. It's full. Every cell is filled with um, with structure that we say easy for exclusion zone or fourth phase water. And what you were alluding to, which I I don't challenge at all. I think you've got it right on. Is um, that that gel like structure and that kind of organization is absolutely critical for for everything the cells do. Um, and our cells are full of easy water. Uh, the textbook suggests that our cells are made up of water, but if they were made up of water, as I heard you say, and I've said it too, if you cut yourself, then all the water should come gushing out, <laughs> you know? And, and so far, I, I haven't seen too many people expire from loss of running water, right. you know? Uh, it doesn't happen. Or the, and the idea on the floor what, as an ER doctor, <laughs> I never saw. <laughs> the the idea that the cell is a gel is actually is not a new idea. It it comes back to a scientist whose name uh, I think believe it, he was German in the nineteen forties and fifties. His name was Fry Wüsling, uh, and he wrote a whole book on the subject. Right. And you know there is there's not much doubt uh, about it except that except that it never managed to find its way into the textbook. Um, which is not so unusual, as you know, better than than most. Uh, lots of ideas that have extreme merit simply don't find their way into the textbook. And right. we all know 
reasons, reasons why there are competing interests, but, but we're essentially a jail. And, and you know, uh, the thing is, we can't be um, a jail permanently because nothing moves, and essentially nothing moves inside the jail. And as you began pointing out, um, uh, in order for, for, for things to move around, um, the jail actually needs to uh, undergo some sort of transition from the jail to, to a, a different state. And as I argue in, in, not in the fourth phase book, but in the book before that, the cells, jails, and the engines of life, this transition from the ordered jail state to the ordinary water state is central for essentially everything that happens uh, inside the cell. It's an initiator of events because nothing can move around essentially inside the jail, but if the jail converts itself or is converted, I should say, into a liquid, then everything can move around. You can get rid of toxins and other substances can flow inside the cell. Things can move around pretty easily. So this transition is really important and, and and uh, Here's an example of where you have uh, actually documented that this transition takes place. Uh, yeah, um, a good example is in the secretory system. Um, uh, and, and the person who's worked on that so much is a colleague and friend of mine, Pedro Verdugo, who's now emeritus professor. And he demonstrated, he demonstrated that the secretory granules um, uh, they basically explode. There's a so-called phase transition where where um, uh, something is 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 condensed, um, and that would be a, you might say in a gel-like state. Undergoes a transition to a more fluid state where where the substances that are inside these secretory granules disperse. They're they're basically uh, they're it's like a fire hose. They're, they're they're expelled, and that can't happen inside a jail. It it must be a transition to something that's more liquid. Otherwise, it wouldn't wouldn't be able to flow. So, so we're uh, about like hormones, like our pancreas gland. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. He he was. I can't remember which secretory granules he was referring to, but you know, as a as a class, I think the two that the principle actually works. So. Um, um, Inspired by that, I actually went to look at, at different systems, and I argued in that book that uh, although nobody had ever actually brought up the idea in those alternative systems or other systems, it was just in the secretory system. I, the, the, there's so much indirect evidence that points to something similar occurring that there's a transition from from the jail state. Uh, to the liquid state, and then back again, of course. Uh, so like in muscle contraction, for example, and that's something I studied for a few decades before I transitioned into studying water. So I did learn a little bit about, uh, about muscles, enough to, um, shall we say, to understand that the, the, uh, that the theory that was put forth by two guys named Huxley, who passed recently, one of them a Nobel Prize winner of great distinction, Sir Andrew Huxley, was yeah. bankrupt. It just, the data just didn't fit the observations. And right. many of those observations came from us, some from other people. And I even wrote a book on that in 1990 called Muscles and Molecules, 
and yeah. I wouldn't I wouldn't suggest reading it. Uh, maybe you did, I, because it's it's maybe too technical for people who are outside the field. But but the point um, is that a lot of evidence points to something similar to what I just described happening also in muscle. That it, and we have some evidence for this. Um, that in the relaxed state, you know, in the relaxed state, the muscles can, uh, you can pull them out very easily. And, um, 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 and, and the water appears in this case to be in the ordered state. There's evidence for this order. And uh, I, I won't go to the next one or two steps because if someone is not familiar with it, it wouldn't, it wouldn't make sense. But in this ordered state, it's really easy for the filaments to slide past one another. So if you pull the muscle, um, it can pull out very easily. Um, and then in order for things to happen, um, the evidence once again is that there's a transition of the water and the proteins together, the two of them doing it together, from the ordered state into the, shall we say, disordered state. Um, and, and that allows the, not, not well, that transition of the water allows the proteins to actually crumple up. And I know that the crumpling up is not part of the existing theory, um, but I believe it's correct. And uh, in fact, uh, uh, side point, uh, in my 1990 book on muscle contraction, I bring these ideas together and uh, explain why the current theory doesn't fit, but the idea that starts with the water transitioning from the ordered state into the disordered state allows the whole contraction to occur. And then it, it, after the contraction, it goes back in, into the, uh, the ordered state. But what I found out to my great surprise, uh, I mean, this idea of muscle contraction is completely and absolutely unorthodox, just like the things that you do. But to my surprise, I found a book and the book was written by the great um, Albert St. Georgie, who you know, but your listeners might, might not know. He's the father of modern biochemistry. Right. Uh, of course, he won a Nobel Prize. He discovered vitamin C and he did so many, so many things beyond discovering vitamin C. And one of them was water. And one of them before that was muscle contraction. So I came upon his book just a few years ago and I opened the book and I couldn't believe what I was reading. St. Yeah. Georgie's idea of muscle contraction written 50, 60, 70 years ago when there was not very much evidence, almost identical to what I wrote in my 1990 book. And boy, did that feel good. Yeah, right. <laughs> so that's another, yeah. See if I got this right, because I, I like to try to simplify it for my listeners and maybe sure. it's a little oversimplified, but I think it gives a, maybe a conception of this. So sure. in ordinary uh, science, or we think the reason muscles contract is we have these two uh, muscles act, or two yeah, proteins, actin and myosin, and they cross-link and they go sort of like this and that, like that because of cross-linking. Uh, unfortunately, that model doesn't actually hold up. And what you're proposing is that the Contraction and expansion has more to do with phase transitions from easy water or structured or gel water 
into more liquid water and that creates the flexibility and the expansion and contraction, which is what we see as movement. Well, just a slight variant. Yeah, you, you uh, got it. Absolutely. And thanks for the clarity. But that transition allows the proteins themselves yeah. to contract, you might say to crumple up, yes. uh, right. which they do. And it goes against the, everything that you read in the textbook. But if you read the original evidence, instead of reading the textbook, you'll see that almost yeah. uniformly um, published reports show that that actually happens. Right. And this is very similar to what I proposed uh, to a certain extent in the cancer book that it turns out that the that that the actual genetic material is embedded in a kind of easy water just because just like anything it's a sort of hydrophilic light protein source and that it and essentially they call it hydrophobic forces but essentially it's it's embedded in this easy water which then for whatever influence it then masks or unmasks the certain part of the genetic material that needs to be coded. So it's really the water that's controlling the genetic expression rather than the other way around. I, I, think, I think you're right. And, and um, you know, it may be, uh, uh, it, it may be that, that the water actually became, came before the genetic material. Yes. Um, uh, I think you said that, and Luc Montagnier, who won the Nobel Prize for actually discovering HIV, I think he's uh, he's uh, he said it, and uh, and 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 the reason he said, oh, this is maybe a digression. I I apologize because there were so many interesting okay. digressions. So so you haven't mentioned, but I I, I think you're nevertheless on board with that. You 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 haven't mentioned the the idea about information stored in, um, in water. Uh, uh, is that too much of a digression to, to mention? Maybe you know, it is. It's, it's not, uh, partly because um, I, so I've often posed the question, so basically water is, is, a, is, a, is a crystal. And we all know that crystals are, are the most efficient way to store information because they have so many surfaces which information can, can be coded on. Right. And you know, anybody who does a computer knows that that's what computers are based on uh, quartz, essentially, or silicon. And so I've often posed the question, why aren't we made of quartz? <laughs> because that would be the, first of all, you can store the most information. And second of all, you could live forever. <laughs> if you have a perfect quartz crystal, you, it won't degrade. And I'll tell you what my answer is. Uh, the reason is because quartz can't grow. And Fair enough. Only I would say be, yeah, because quartz can't undergo transition. Yeah. Nothing will move through the quartz. Right. <laughs> okay, so, so we're on the same grow, It can't evolve. It can't change. It can't learn to feel new feelings and think new thoughts. And so you know, whatever, God, or however we think of this, had to come up with a living quartz. And a quartz that can undergo phase transitions. Yep. And you discovered, you know, how God did it. Well, I, 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 I think so. There's something, you know, something more. Actually, I, um, I, I wonder whether, um, 
the EZ water uh, will be eventually will be a replacement for computer memories. Uh, you know, uh, and, and the reason is uh, uh, potentially the storage information storage density uh, is at least theoretically so much higher that the information storage uh, could uh, the, the density of storage could exceed the current density of storage by something on the order of um, a billion times. I, I went through the calculation. I forgot wow. and the reason. The reason for that is, you know, to start with, the easy water is, is structured as you say, like the crystal. It has a particular structure, and it consists of hydrogens and oxygens. So, so a computer memory is kind of similar. It consists of silicon atoms that are also distributed um, in three dimensions in a regular array. And it turns out that by hook or by crook, uh, each one of those silicon atoms uh, can transition from one state to another. So it means it's a one or a zero. Yeah. So, so if in, in the easy water, if you had something similar, uh, then in theory, it could represent, um, could re represent a, a, a kind of memory. So it turns out that the oxygens instead of having two states, uh, actually have five different states, five different so-called oxidation states, uh, minus two, which we, we usually uh, understand and, and, and use, but there are more. There's minus one, there's zero, even plus one and plus two. And you could find them in any chemistry book. It's not exotic or debated yep. or whatever. So it means that in this structured water, in this easy water, you have an array of hydrogens and oxygens that are organized in crystal-like fashion, just like a computer memory. And each one of those oxygens can occupy any one of five different states, at least in theory. And yeah. so if you compute, if that's the case, um, it, uh, with each one of those atoms uh, uh, being able to occupy any one of five different states instead of two, you have an enormously more, enormously higher density of, of memory. And the only thing is to figure out how exactly to address those sites. So now that it's possible to take easy water and, and create from the water a solid at room temperature, this has been done by an Italian group and we've confirmed um, and putting together a manuscript now that we can do it too, same thing. It means that the easy water with the regular array of oxygens and hydrogens could be made into a solid, could be put into, you know, eventually into a computer memory. But of course, all of this is theoretical. You know, nobody's figured out how to yet to address individual atoms or molecules, what, what have you, of, of, uh, of the oxygen. If that happens, once it happens, this will be a, a breakthrough, a, a revolution of untold magnitude, my opinion. Yep. My, you know, when I listen to you say that, uh, again, I would love to hear your, uh, your take on this. I have a feeling that that revolution has already happened. Oh, really? Please it's explain. It's called a human being. <laughs> and and here's, why, here's why I think that. One of my heroes is a guy named Goethe, who, you know, I'm sure you've yeah. heard of. And so he, it, it's very interesting what he said, because he said the human being is the best measuring and observation device ever created. 
but he said, it's like, it's like, uh, you know, the people say, yeah, but it's, I'm not so good at that or whatever. And he said, well, you have to train yourself. And people sort of, generally speaking, rebel at that idea. Like, why do I have to train myself? And I say, because if you want to play oboe in the New York Philharmonic, you can't just show up and say, I'd like to play oboe. And they say, you ever played oboe before? He's, no, I don't have one. <laughs> you can't do it then. So he said that I think what's happening with a human being is if you decide to train yourself to be a measuring observation, sort of a computer in a way, that you increase the amount of these uh, oxygen possibly uh, uh, possibilities that you can access. So if you never think, you can just do plus two plus one. But if you think about and observe and train yourself and talk to the trees and listen to the frogs and be in the sun and then you can do two plus two plus one zero because you've actually sort of improved the ability of your of your water to to stretch a little bit and and once you get all five then you're goethe <laughs> <laughs> but he's dead <laughs> so yeah, right. uh, yeah i um uh, i i'm Im impressed by by those ideas and just to uh, augment what you've said, I, you may not be fully aware, but there's a lot of evidence, um, or you are aware, but you know, I organize each year the, the annual conference on the physics, chemistry, and biology of water. Unfortunately, COVID postponed uh, this October, but it's coming in yeah. the springtime. And at these conferences, we're on, I think it's our 15th coming up, we've been doing these. At each conference, we have two or three people who come to speak about information, memory of water. Uh, long ago, this was, this was an unacceptable um, uh, feature of science. Uh, it, 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 it came with uh, Jacques Benveniste, who, yeah. who you know, but um, yeah. he was my, my friend. And uh, unfortunately, he, he died pre prematurely, but he had, he had evidence that um, that the water could actually store information. You know, at the time, uh, it was hard to believe at the time because people thought of water not as having a fourth phase, which is ordered like a crystal, but right. devoid of any such. And so, so people thought about the water molecules as moving around at a fantastic number of times per second or even femtosecond, and each one uh, occupying a random position and it was hard to conceive of any water like that where the molecules are bouncing around at this fantastic rate. Hard to conceive that that can store any kind of information. But you see, that's changed now um, uh, because there is a phase of water that, that can, uh, at least theoretically, can store information. So, so the, reasons, um, the reasons for casting off um, Benveniste's findings as impossible don't exist anymore, they, right. and and so if he had, if he had appeared uh, uh, thirty years later, all this took place in around nineteen ninety or so, uh, the reception would have been different. But there are other people uh, right now who are following up, and not only have they confirmed Benveniste's basic findings uh, amply, so there's no doubt 
that his findings are 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 valid, or, although they were claimed to be irreproducible, is simply not true. Yeah. But other people have come um, and contributed to the field. So I, I'll just mention one or two, because some of them are pretty interesting. Um, there's a guy named Serge Kernbach, K-E-R-N-B-A-C-H, and he's working in Germany. And he published a paper recently, and I, I shame on me, I haven't read through the paper, but I heard him make a presentation at our water conference. So Serge, uh, in his laboratory in Germany, uh, has got a container of water, it may look something like this, but without the nice uh, outside uh, motif, he's sitting in his laboratory. And he's got a colleague who he said is 10,000 kilometers away. I think it was New Zealand, but I can't remember for sure. And they had an arrangement. Uh, this guy at a certain pre-arranged time, the guy in New Zealand, uh, was to focus his intention on the water in the laboratory, in this German laboratory, long distance away at a certain time. And so Serge is sitting in his laboratory and he's got this technique to measure the properties of water. It's called impedance spectroscopy. And he sticks a couple of electrodes and he, he mentions that he gets some kind of wiggle and such. So he measures it before and he measures it after this guy has uh, put a positive intention onto the water. And the two are, you know, remarkably unalike. Uh, uh, this, and, and, uh, and so I haven't read the full paper, but I presume that, that the original one prior to the intention being focused is fairly reproducible. And this is, uh, you might say, anomalous. So if all that is true, it means that someone from a huge distance is able to influence the water that's sitting at, uh, at some distance, uh, a huge distance away. So it means that uh, it, it, with this kind of subtle energy that I think we're both alluding to, distance doesn't matter, or distance is not as relevant as it is for other kinds of energies that we in physics that we all know about this is different in some way right. but it's not just it's not just him this is just one example of other people demonstrating um pretty much the same the same thing um uh you know i, I let me just tell you about about one more although at, for the moment i can't i can't remember his name this is old this is about 70 or 80, year, 80 years old and it it, it was um, uh, it was in Russia, and the, the name will, co will come to me as a husband and wife team, and they decided to investigate onion plants. So you know, in the onion plants sitting in in your garden, I'm sure, uh, right? Yeah, <laughs> correct. Well, it used to be. We're moved, moving, but yeah, I get it. You'll have another one where you move to, and um, if I'm lucky enough, I might even be the recipient if you send me an onion. I love onions. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, anyway. Uh, yeah, so, so, you know, when the onion plant is growing, the cells in the roots divide, they undergo mitosis. And, you know, pl onion plant A will undergo the mitosis at one rate, let's say, I don't know what the frequency is, maybe one every couple of days or something. Yeah. And onion plant B will be doing the same thing, but let's say every three days instead of every two days. So, he had an idea. He said, you know, I think these might be communicating. So he took the two onion plants and he put them, not touching, but not too far from one another. 
and he, he checked the rate of mitosis again in these two plants and they were synchronized. I don't know whether it was to the faster or slower, but they synchronized. Kind of like, you know, women getting together, living together and their menstrual periods tend to be synchronized, which, which could actually be not only real, but uh, the, could, what we're talking about could be the reason, uh, actually, the very reason for that. And, uh, and so, of course, they did some experiments to check out what kind of signal must be going back and forth between the two. So he put a glass barrier between the two, no more synchronization, uh -huh. gone. And then he put a quartz barrier uh, and the synchronization persisted. Uh -huh. So he said, what's the difference between quartz and glass? You know, you can see through both. And the difference is that uh, what he said is that the quartz passes ultraviolet. And therefore it's possible that the communication between these two plants is some kind of signal that's in, in the ultraviolet range. Right. He didn't prove it, but that's, that's what he, he came to. So, um, part of lights, in other words. Yeah, yeah, a kind of, right, lights, you might say, or electromagnetic energy. Now, it doesn't exactly fit with the observation that I mentioned about New Zealand, because, um, because any kind of light you'd expect, the intensity will diminish with the square of the distance. It just keeps falling off very rapidly, but this doesn't. So, um, you know, and... Yeah. And those are only two of many experiments now that demonstrate that there is some kind of information that's being transmitted um, and the water is deeply involved. And, you know, some of your uh, listeners might know the work of the late uh, Masaru Emoto. Right. His work was not scientific. He was a spiritualist. Um, but the people who are following him now in, in his very office are, are moving toward more scientific kinds of, uh, yeah. of exploration. So we will see. A lot of, a lot of scientists are skeptical because, because his methods were not scientific. But anyway, it, his work certainly fits in, into the same category as the scientific experiments that uh, have been carried out. Right. Uh, so I won't... Give, go ahead, keep going. Let me give this a shot too, because I, again, for... For my listeners and just the way I think, I, I try to put this in a, in a conceptual framework that allows people to see it. And so, and I, I wrote about this in our, in our new book a lot. I said, what we're really talking about is do, is it possible that shape and form and material influence subtle uh, electromagnetic or or energy sources that we can't see or feel. That's what really what we're talking about. We're talking about the transfer of energy from one sort of shape or one form or one material to something else. Now, if you say that, if you say it in that way, people tend to say, or at least the medical profession says, that's not possible. We you know, shape and form and material don't transmit subtle energies, energies you can't see. Uh, and I would just point out, as I did, what about if you make, if you take a, uh, a Stradivarius violin, which is made out of a very particular kind of wood, and you have to make it in a very specific form, and that shapes 
energy that you can't see called sound waves and create something that has meaning for a human being. Because if you started with plywood and made it just any old form you wanted, it wouldn't work and nobody would listen or pay $10 million. Now, it's possible that's the only example in all of nature that, <laughs> that uh, form and shape and material structures, energies we can't see. That would be hard for me to believe. In, in fact, I, I have a suspicion that that is actually how it works. That the, the onion is a certain form and it always has to work through water because that is the sort of acceptor of these electromagnetic fields or these energies. That, and so, and even the water in the air is probably to a certain extent the transmitter of that. And there could be 10 or 100 or a million different forms of these energies. We, we just don't know because if we don't know how to measure them, we wouldn't see them. And some of them may, may not even have anything to do with the so-called speed of light. They may not exist in a sort of a time or a spatial framework. Uh, and the, the interesting thing about science to me is we see observations which are true. You know, it's a fact. You, you do an experiment, you do it very carefully, and you see the water changing or you see the onion changing. And then we tend to say, that doesn't fit our conceptual framework, so it can't be true. <laughs> and that's bizarre. I mean, that's like, uh, that's like lunacy almost. That's not how, how you learn anything. It's the antithesis of science completely. Our job as scientists, as you've um, so nicely expressed, is basically we see an observation. If it's a genuine observation, if others can right. repeat it, it's our obligation to yeah. explore it and figure out what's going on, not right. to dismiss it uh, because uh, it doesn't fit in with what we think we know today. That's crazy, absolutely. But that's where, that's where our scientific system uh, has, unfortunately, has gone to. And I, uh, if I maybe allowed a few words, because this is something that has occupied my attention for a long time. Uh, we created an institute called the Institute for Venture Science yeah. to remedy the situation. Um, right. And um, uh, uh, that's moving along. Um, but, but um, you know, the, the reason you got to ask yourself, why, why should this be? Goethe would never have permitted anything like this, nor, for example, even Einstein or people of his era. But this is relatively new. Uh, this is uh, maybe the past 40 or 50 years, uh, increasingly. So, so a former student of mine uh, wrote to me lamenting, she's in a new laboratory now, and she's lamenting that the focus of that laboratory is not on understanding science, but the focus is how to get your work in, into prominent journals so it could be recognized and how to, how to organize your life to, um, to write a lot of papers so you can succeed. Right. Uh, those those are not the goals of science. That, that's a societal kind of um, or sociological goal to for scientists to to put bread on their tables. And it, I think it's it's largely because of the um, of the institutions that fund science. You know, a hundred years ago, um, 
a science could a scientist could either a highly motivated person to become a scientist um, could either either do theoretical science or if they required money, uh, which now is a giant requirement, uh, they would either come from a wealthy family or they might find a benefactor who said, who says, uh, hey, Tom, uh, you know, um, I'm with you, do what you want, and yep. I'm, I'm going to give you the money. I trust you. So that was what science was like. But now it's different. Uh, now, in order to, to succeed, uh, uh, especially in a university position, what counts um, is the amount of money that you bring in. Because you don't bring in the money, you can't hire the people to do the work that needs to be done. Right. And you can't um, earn the space that's required to do, do the work. So, so, so money is fundamental. So how do you get the money? Well, you get the money by applying to large foundations or organizations like the National Institutes of Health or the National Science Foundation. But how does it work? See, so I, I've, I've been there. <laughs> Uh, the way it works is you, Tom, you have an idea. Um, let's say your idea is that the earth is round. But all those people out there, especially in Maine, where you are right now, um, well, it does tend to be a little hilly, but, but it, it, typically if you look outside, it looks kind of flat, you know, for some distance. And it's easy to, um, easy to imagine that the earth is flat, uh, plus or minus a few bumps, right? Because where you look at a nearby lake and it's flat. So the earth is flat. But you, Tom, uh, come to a, a different idea. You come to an idea that, you know, maybe it's not flat, maybe it's round. And why do you think it's round? Well, you have what's called preliminary evidence. What does that mean? It means, well, you've seen satellite photos of the earth and it kind of looks like a sphere, you know, it doesn't look flat like a cube. Um, that's one. And the second, in your many travels, you went from San Francisco to New York, and uh, when you were permitted, you went on to, um, to Berlin, um, and then <laughs> from, from there you went to Moscow and Beijing and back to San Francisco. And you looked out the window of the plane, and you were thinking, well, gee, if the earth is flat, you know, you ought to see the edge, because you could return to the same point, so this flatness must be a cube with edges. And you looked assiduously and you could find no edge at all. So you got this so-called preliminary evidence and you go to the National Science Foundation and they get from Tom Cowan, they get this really interesting proposal that the earth is round, you know, but everybody knows it's flat. It's sort of self-evident. So what does this poor bloke do? Um, he or she, you know, they have to, they have to do their job uh, properly. So they recruit the experts on the shape of the earth because here's this radical seeming guy, uh, Tom Cowan, and he's proposing something weird, like, you know, the earth is, is round. So we better get the experts to, to check on this guy to see if what he's saying is potentially legit or is this guy a crackpot? Uh, well, so this gatekeeper, does his job properly. He hires, recruits uh, the most distinguished earth-shaped scientists in the world, and they review your application. So what do you think is gonna be their reaction to, to this? Uh, something is dreadfully wrong because we all know that, we all know that the earth is flat. Um, it's been known for, for uh, many generations. 
And besides, if this radical guy is right, then we're wrong. And if we're wrong, we lose our exalted positions. And when the New York Times wants to come and learn more about the little bumps on the face of the otherwise flat earth, they're not gonna to come to us anymore. They're gonna to go to this radical guy. So our reaction to you is, well, you know, um, it's an interesting application. And, but you know, you didn't tell us about the statistical analysis that you're planning to do. So go home and rewrite it and resubmit it. And everybody's sitting around the review table. They're all happy because they really don't want you to succeed. Because if you succeed, they fail. And right. so, so that's, right. that's what's happened to our granting system. And everybody knows that you simply don't propose anything radical because you're not going to get funded. In fact, right. it's we even worse. Here, just look, I'm aware of the time here. Oh. So you threw down the gauntlet a little bit to me and said, you just wrote a new book that has a, a more radical theory than anything I've proposed. And uh, I, I, it's funny because I don't think of myself as a radical at all. I think I'm just saying what seems to be common sense, but I, I took that as a compliment. So I want to yes. hear now, what, what, what is, if you could just share with us just your ideas on what, what have you recently come to that's- so Okay, uh, I, I, I will tell you, but I, I apologize for using the word radical. That's a, a kind of a misrepresentation. We're after truth and we, yeah. we go after it as we see it. And yeah. if we're called radical because our views may differ from those of the mainstream, it's okay. okay. Yeah, new book. Um, so I've come to realize that electrical charge is, is um, really important for um, so many, um, or the force between charges, I should say, uh, whether it be attractive or repulsive is, is so central for so many phenomena on the face of the earth and beyond that we've never really thought about. And the book, the book describes many of these, many of these areas of natural science. Um, so I, I just run off uh, a few of them. What creates wind? Yeah. Why does the earth keep um, rotating on its axis? What keeps it going? And, and what keeps it revolving around the sun? Um, it's been a few billion years, you know, and things run down, but what keeps it going? Uh, what creates weather? Uh, why does a cloud float in the sky? A cloud is made up, and maybe I've addressed that one already, I'm not sure. A cloud is made up of water, and you know, if you climb to the height of, um, of a cloud on a really long ladder and take a pitcher of water, pour it, it goes down. It doesn't stay up. Right. Uh, okay, so that's uh, another one is, what causes gravitation? You know, we, we tend to think that one mass attracts another mass, and that's been the going theory for a long time, uh, except if you, um, if you um, expose yourself to Einstein and his, his theories uh, about space-time, uh, which are really not so simple to digest, uh, it, it, the, the problem with the, the mass-based gravitation, it doesn't always fit. There are many so-called anomalies that right. don't work, don't fit into the paradigm, but you know, we tend to sweep those anomalies under the, under the rug and, oh, someone will figure out. We know that gravitation is based on mass and therefore um, it's got to be right. 
And therefore, if there are anomalies, of which there are many, someone will figure out how they actually fit. And so this is a problem when there are too many anomalies. And I yeah. think that charge is involved in that. Um, birds, how do birds fly? So if I were to ask you uh, how, oh, for your grandchildren, I'm sure they're precocious. Um, and when they come to uh, ask you, hey, Grandpa, how do birds fly? Um, and there are lots of birds in Maine. Um, and, uh, and of course, you're going to tell them, oh, they flap their wings, right? <laughs> but, uh, I don't know that I would say that, but go ahead. <laughs> okay, but not all birds flap their wings. Um, you know, I'm, I'm sitting in my home right now. Um, I look out uh, the many windows, and there's an eagle's nest nearby. And every day I see the eagles, beautiful, flying. And they rarely flap their wings, but yeah. they go either uh, forward or, I mean, straight, or they descend or they ascend, or they go into the wind, against the wind, it, everything. They do everything every day. And they almost never flap their wings. So there's got to be something different. Um, and um, I argue, I can't do it here because there are, there are too many points of argument that yeah. when the birds go through the air, they get charged. And um, whether they flap their wings like this or they move like this, they're moving through the air. And that movement is called tribal electric effect, creates charge. The negative charge on the, birds, on the bird, especially its wings, but also the rest of the body, repels the negative charge of the earth and the birds keep aloft that way. They don't sink. Um, okay, one last thing. Is that similar to how the uh, blood moves in the capillaries? It might be. Uh, charges uh, may well be uh, important, and I think they are, absolutely. And, and I think, see if you agree with this, the charge is basically an intrinsic property of the fact that water can structure itself or create this easy, negatively charged water. That's, uh, I mean, exactly. So the easy is negative and the region of water right. outside the easy is positive. So it's like a battery where you've got a separation of charges and that contains energy. And that energy, going back to our body, I think is really important in running our body. It's potential yeah. energy that gets used. Yeah. Um, it, it's something that you won't find in the textbooks, but um, I think it's central. So I'm excited about this. My wife says, my wife used to say, sorry, my late wife, it's just one year since her passing. She used to say, Jerry, if you publish this book, it's gonna be the end of your career because it's too radical. We shall uh -huh. see. <laughs> it doesn't sound radical to me at all. I, you know, it, it's always been curious to me that um, you get dissent and even disagreement as to whether uh, living things like humans are actually fundamentally electrical beings. And I always thought that was curious because then if, if we're not, why are we doing these EKGs and EEGs <laughs> and all these electrical tests? Yeah. And, and, you know, I don't know if you know this, but I've even argued that the whole model of how a nerve works is, is so essentially ludicrous because they say you have this um, chemical, you know, calcium magnesium flux into and out of the nerve, then it comes to a synapse and it releases this chemical and, this, and the chemical swims across to the other side. And if you think about it, there's 20 nerves between your brain and your foot, and that would take about two or three seconds in order to 
move those chemicals. And that's so against our observation of how it works. In fact, we, we are living out of time. That's clear. The, all these things are happening, you know, essentially in a timeless, probably distanceless uh, way. That's just the facts. That's what you can observe. The only thing that can do that are these electrical forces and subtle forces and, and all these things that are essentially created by the dynamics of water. Well, you're, you're preaching to the choir. Uh, I, I have nothing, nothing to add to that eloquent uh, uh, description, except the book by Becker, which you know about. Um, yeah. Uh, what was the name of it? Uh, uh, body Electric. Oh, it's an right. absolute must read. Yeah, right. dealing with electricity in the body. Okay, Terry, people are going to want to know this. Do you have any advice for people out who are listening as far as even something as, as banal, I guess the word is, like what kind of water should they drink? What should they do to keep their water healthy? Are we talking put your feet on the earth, get out in the sun, do saunas, you know, anything that you can share with people? Uh, yeah, um, you know, the question I lament because I get this question almost on a daily basis. Okay. Uh, what, what water should I drink? You, you seem to be the guru, you know, tell me what water. And my response is, I don't know. Um, and I, I could say a few words, but the reason I don't know is that, you know, I could have all the theories I want in my life, but until, until exper proper experiments are done to answer the question, um, we don't know, know for sure. So for example, you know, if you're a diabetic and um, someone says to you, well, if you drink the right water, it might help, might reverse your uh, high uh, sugar level. Um, nobody has done the proper experiments, uh, or the proper clinical studies. And the reason they haven't done it is they don't have the same money as the drug companies. The pharmaceutical companies can spend a, you know, $100 million testing a, a drug, but, but someone who is harvesting water or uh, treating water in some way or whatever doesn't have that kind of money. And therefore, they can't do it. So somebody has got to do it. Um, and some years ago, when I had more time, I actually proposed to the National Institutes of Health that we can do it because we know something about water. but um, you know, but, but um, it takes a lot of money to do it. And we proposed, I think, $5 million. There's nothing compared to yeah. the, uh, uh, I, I forget, 40, is it $40 billion NIH budget? Uh, um, yeah, right. yeah so it's, a, it's a substantial budget. So, but they never heard of water. You know, water? What are you kidding? This is, yeah. this is nonsense. What about uh, being in the sun, being on the earth, being yeah. The so all of those, yeah. So so I can, fields, yeah. I I can state it in um, you know a simple way because I know we don't have infinite time, and it it starts with your your cells need to be filled with easy water, and if they're not, your cells are not functioning up to par, and they may be somewhat dysfunctional or very dysfunctional or even pathological. So you need to restore that easy water so the cells can undergo a proper transition from easy to, uh, to ordinary water and do, do their job. So what you wanna to do to, to improve health is do anything you can do to build easy water. And we found, uh, you mentioned sauna a few times. So we found uh, that infrared energy, uh, 
which is what you get in the sauna. It's hot, whether it's whether it's moist or or dry. There's heat, and the heat is essentially equivalent to infrared. So when you expose your body to infrared energy, your body soaks it up, and the infrared energy builds easy water. So right. so you want to do that um, to build, and that's the reason why for many people, especially those who live in Maine in the winter, <laughs> and especially in Russia and Finland. They use the sauna or banya or whatever they want to call it on a regular basis because you go in, you feel tired, your muscles ache, you've got a headache, and you come out feeling great. And I think that this is the reason. Yeah. Second thing you can do is to ground yourself or earth yourself. And the reason for that is actually similar because the earth has a net negative charge. Um, Americans don't don't know that as well as Russians. The Russians, uh, the Russians know it, I'm told by a Russian friend, since they went to middle school. They all know it. Here, you, you tell them this and you know they, they, they think you're nuts because it can't be. And I, for one, studied electrical engineering as an undergraduate. Nobody ever told me that the earth was anything but neutral. But the evidence is clear, it's negatively charged. Right. So if you connect yourself, as it did, two days ago outside without socks, putting my feet down on the earth, that negative charge um, seeps into your body. And yep. if you've got a bunch of cells and organ, whatever, that's not negative enough, those negative charges can seep into those regions and actually build easy water. We showed in the laboratory, you add negative charge, you get easy water. So, okay. so those, are, those are two things to do. Uh, we also found I don't want to go on ad infinitum, um, but we, we there are several other things. One is certain herbs um, uh, we tested, um, and uh, in our experimental tests, we saw that they build easy water. Uh, we're talking turmeric, for example, yeah. basil, holy basil, uh, even aspirin, we found, uh, does it. Um, and ghee uh, does it you know, they use an Ayurvedic tradition and today yeah. increasingly they all do it. So, so if you, if you um, um, eat the proper foods that will help you to build easy water, which should improve your health. Um, so th those are, those are a few. Um, and, and just one more thing is to drink easy water, getting back to your original question. So there, there's no hard evidence for this. But everything that we know and that we've learned suggests that since your body needs easy water, if you drink the stuff, um, you're going to be in better shape. And so, how do you, you know, how do you drink the stuff? Well, you can get it some some springs, um, underground yeah. springs, have have been shown. There's a simple test for easy water's presence, and some of them have been demonstrated to contain uh, easy water. Or another way is to do juicing to take yep. a plant in your garden, you know, take it and macerate it. Uh, there are machines that do that and drink the water. And the reason for uh, disposing of the solid is it, it just fills you so quickly, but you want to drink the water. Why? Because the water, um, the water is water from inside the cells of plants, you know, freshly grown plants. And those cells like our cells, uh, when we're new and fresh, like a baby, full of easy water. So you're actually drinking the easy water from the plant and transferring it to your body. And the reports that I've heard from uh, the, the um, uh, health 
providers who do this is that it's uniformly outstanding. Patient comes back three months, five months, and they're feeling better, no matter what the affliction. Uh, I've not seen hard evidence on this, but I've, I've heard reports. You know, Side effect, they lose weight. It's interesting about that because the, the king of the juicing world was a guy named Max Gerson. Ah. He was insistent on the type of juicer that you had to use. Ah. Because he said that you had to use a juicer that didn't create any, any spinning action, essentially. It just ground the, the, the plant into a pulp, and then it was a press. And he said that when you do that, you maintain the electrostatic uh, charge in, in the juice. And you had to drink it within basically two minutes of juicing it. And oh. he, he was the one who presented 50 cancer cases to the U.S. Senate of people who were cured of cancer with, with this eventually became to be known as the Norwalk juicer. Oh, okay. He also insisted that anybody who used any other kind of juicer uh, I don't think he had a financial stake in it, but uh, would not get the results because it would create a, a field that would actually degrade this ability to create a charge. And I, I have for years, I used to use a Norwalk juicer and with my patients. And um, I thought that what he was doing when I read your work was extracting the easy water out of the juice intact and that no other juicer is really able to do that. Well, I don't know if that's the case, but uh, I'm willing to, <laughs> to believe it. Um, yeah, and what happened when he presented it before the, um, did they you say? They voted four to three against, uh, against funding Gerson therapy in favor of chemotherapy. <laughs> Surprise. <laughs> All right, last, last thing. Do you have any evidence or thoughts on whether uh, what we're calling electromagnetic fields, you know, cell phone radiation, is good, bad, or indifferent to the easy water in your cells and tissues? Well, we've done experiments, and I can just tell you some preliminary data. Um, I think it will hold up, but it's preliminary. It's not published yet. Uh, we haven't done 5G. That's the one that, um, from, from everything I've heard from people who I trust and respect, this is lethal, um, um, and the lethality I think uh, probably uh, or might may well reside in the destruction of water. But we've we've looked at uh, a standard router, um, and um, the experiment was suggested by by my uh, my friend and colleague uh, colleague Dietrich Klinghardt, who's also oh, yeah. my physician. Um, um, whenever he's here in Seattle, which is not so often, but. Um, um, and he said, you ought to try this experiment. And so, you know, reflexively, when he says to do something, I do it. So we've done the experiment and we found that putting the router next to a chamber in which we can visualize the EZ, you turn on the router and the EZ shrinks. Yeah. It shrinks by, uh, it doesn't shrink to zero, it shrinks by about 15% or so in the experiments we did, but it shrinks reliably. Yeah. So that's preliminary, we haven't published it, I haven't, personally gone over the evidence with the care that I, uh, I will, but it looks like that's the case. So I'd be nervous about, um, that's why I have no cell phone. Um, All, right. All right, Jerry. Well, Tom, it's been a really great pleasure. And, um, you know, as, uh, as I said, 
early on, maybe when we weren't recording. You're one of my heroes, and I really appreciate all, all the, the thinking that you're doing and, um, and bringing it to the attention of the, of the public. And I'm with you on that. So thanks for the opportunity. I appreciate it. And, okay. um, and take I'm, care. And I'm so grateful for you joining me. And really, Jerry, just from all of us, we're grateful. So. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. Tom. Take care, my friends. Okay, take care. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.